You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by Flume. It's the perfect device for tracking your home's water use in real time on your smartphone. It's so easy to use. You just attach a small device to your water meter using a band, the same way you put a watch on your wrist. Then you connect to Wi-Fi you download the app, and you're up and running. It's as simple as that. You don't need a plumber. You don't need to cut into any of your pipes or water lines. Very easy to set up. Then you can set water budgets, how much you want to use each day or week. It'll keep track of that. It'll tell you what's going on in your house with water use minute by minute. It'll send alerts to you if there's excessive water use or if it suspects a leak. In fact, when I installed Flume at my house, it told me almost right away about a leak. I was losing a gallon of water every six minutes. I'm honestly not sure when I would have found that without Flume. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 10% off at flumewater.com. Waterloop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I want to talk to you for just a minute about High Sierra showerheads. I use them in my house because they're a water-efficient fixture, but I'm a big fan for other reasons as well, including their design and construction. They're made of solid metal. So this High Sierra showerhead I have in my hand right now, you can tell that it's a quality well-made product. Unlike the vast majority of shower heads, which involve a lot of plastic in their construction. And that's something we need less of, right? Less consumer products with plastic in them. The other awesome thing is their nozzle design. It's a unique patented nozzle that's not going to clog like so many other shower heads. The other thing about this nozzle is that it will work in low pressure. You'll still get a strong, powerful, but water-efficient shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. There has been a lot of attention on the Colorado River Basin for many years, the challenges with water supply and, and everything, but it seems like there's a lot more recently. Uh, I'm very happy to be joined by Ted Kowalski. He is with the Walton Family Foundation as the Colorado River Initiative Lead and a Senior Program Officer. Ted, thanks for coming on the podcast. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I, I want to just talk to you about what I think I've seen in the news uh, sitting over here on the East Coast uh, recently. It seems uh, that there's even more concern, uh, rising concern for the way climate change and drought and arid conditions are taking a toll in the Colorado River Basin. I know this has been a story for years. People have seen the photos of of the, the different reservoirs, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, the white lines, and have seen stories, but it really, I've just seen a lot in the past month or two. What's going on? Yeah, well, the Colorado River Basin for decades now has been really experiencing a drier hydrology we believe it's in part due to climate change and um, really only through better, more coordinated water management have we been able to keep Lakes Powell and Lake Mead right about 50%. Mm -hmm. But um, this year uh, we're seeing even more uh, dramatic 
difficult hydrology. Um, we're seeing it through soil moisture that is uh, dropping. And so, for example, last year, the hydrology was just under uh, average. And yet when you saw the flows meter out across the you know, past six months or so, we saw closer to 50% of the runoff that we would expect to see. And so really that's why a moisture was sopping up that water. We're, we're you know, consuming more. It's, it's a warmer, uh, drier uh, conditions that we're experiencing. And some have called it sort of an aridification of the Colorado River Basin where we're seeing uh, less hydrology and warmer temperatures, sort of a hot, drier future and that's making our water challenges very difficult. Mm. I mean, it, it, is it is the current situation kind of setting off alarms for people? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, water managers pay attention to this information on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think even the public is starting to recognize how difficult this hydrology is, how important water is for the southwestern United States. And today... There are significant portions of the basin throughout the seven basin states, which includes Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, Utah, Arizona, Nevada, and California, who are in severe drought or exceptional drought conditions. And those maps, um, if you will, are being realized and experienced by everyday uh, public. And, and I think people are starting to really pay attention. Yeah. And these are very beautiful, amazing states and parts of the country and have been popular for people to move to, you know, Colorado and, and Arizona. And I imagine that those trends are continuing too, right? You have still have rising populations and continued development putting forces on this. Yeah, without a doubt, there's a significant amount of growth occurring within the Colorado River Basin. I think uh, three of the Colorado River Basin states are in the top 10 in terms of most rapid growth or population um, you know, moving to those states. And so you have additional pressures um, on the water supplies at a time when the water supplies are less secure and we're at a time where the water supplies tend to be shrinking in part because of those increased temperatures, increased consumptive use by crops and other um, factors. And so uh, really, it's going to take a lot more creativity. And, um, you know, we're trying to ensure at the Walton Family Foundation that we're uh, able to develop appropriate water management solutions that take into account the environment and also um, our climate change resilient, if you will. Sure. And the other thing I've seen in the news recently is about more negotiations, uh, more work or fresh work, renewed work on agreements among the states and the basin for, for water use. Um, I'd love to hear about that process that I think is kicking off again uh, that might take a few years to get to, to the new agreement. Certainly. And in my previous role, I worked for the state of Colorado, representing Colorado in, in the Colorado River negotiations uh, in the early 2000s. And I, I will tell you back then, um, there wasn't a meeting that we would go to where litigation wasn't mm. bandied about by uh, one state or another or one basin or another or between the United States and Mexico. Um, however, the, the basin states and the U.S. and Mexico and, and others came together in 2007 and adopted rules for how we were going to manage the Colorado River 
in a better, uh, more holistic way. And those rules have really um, demonstrated how effective you can be if you're working together, if you're collaborating, um, but they expire in 2025. And so by the rules own terms, uh, the Bureau of Reclamation, who's the, the water master in the lower part of the basin and who is manages the two largest reservoirs, Lakes Powell and Lakes Mead, um, are initiating uh, new rulemaking to revisit the rules that were adopted back in 2007 and see if there are changes or uh, additional um, tweaks or additional, um, you know, uh, changes that they can make to better manage our water supplies in, in the face of the challenges we see ahead of us. Yeah. So you've been around, involved in and around these negotiations and agreements for a couple decades now. Um, how have they, how has the tenor changed or how has the actual nuts and bolts changed? Has it, you mentioned it might be more, there might be more collaborative spirit at this point. Um, yeah, just, just how has it evolved? Yeah, I definitely believe it's a lot more collaborative. Um, you know, I think uh, when you look at the challenges and sort of the, the positions that individual states and individual basins and, and quite frankly, the United States and Mexico uh, were taking back in the early 2000s, it was a lot more competitive. It was seen as a, um, you know, a, a take it or leave it or, you know, sort of a zero sum game that, you know, you can only uh, succeed if you take more and, and you take it from a different state or you take it from a different basin or a different country or a different sector. And really, um, since 2007, uh, we've developed a much more collaborative approach to, to I would say, a more um, empathetic approach, recognizing that we all need to be able to manage our water supplies and to be able to use less water, um, and that we ought to be encouraging water conservation as a, sort of a, a philosophy that we ought to be encouraging water conservation as opposed to uh, the old tenet of the West, which was use it or lose it. And really it sort of penalized you, um, you know, in laws and policy, if you didn't use your water, uh, you were penalized in some way. And I think there's been this new approach and it's, it's um, existing across the States and, and, and both us and Mexico, there's been this, building, I think 2007, the states came together and said, yeah, we're all going to work together to try to um, survive as a basin. And then in 2012, the United States and Mexico signed a binational agreement, uh, a five-year agreement, and then another um, agreement uh, five years later uh, through these minutes, minute 319 and minute 323, whereby they said, yeah, we're going to try to use less water. And um, the U.S. allowed Mexico if they conserve their water, uh, to be able to store that water in advance for subsequent use, which had never really been done. And then subsequent to that, NGOs and tribes have added to the conversation. And there's just been more and more collaboration, most recently with the drought contingency plans, but we can talk about that in a, sure. a little later. Sure. Uh, 
one of the things that you know you've talked about is is these different stakeholders and different groups, right? There there needs to be water for the cities, the residents, and the municipalities. Uh, agriculture is a massive uh, you know user and, and really important. And but uh, we've talked before. You talked about there needing to be more priority on the health of the river itself. And uh, the river shouldn't have to necessarily settle for leftovers in these negotiations. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the most dramatic examples was with Minute 319, was, which was between the United States and Mexico. And while that uh, agreement talked about how uh, Mexico could conserve water and save it in U.S. reservoirs and take it at later times, which was really just sort of a... a dramatic way that Mexico could be more in control of their future, that they weren't just receiving an annual allocation each and every year, but rather they could manage their water across years by using storage in another country. Um, But one of the things that came out of that agreement was uh, the ability for Mexico to store water in U.S. reservoirs and release it for a pulse flow. Many people don't know this, but the, the Colorado River no longer flows to the sea on um, on a you know typical basis, and for the first time in decades, uh, the U.S. and Mexico and environmental groups were able to collaborate and work with water users to to recreate um, a, a flow to the sea for the first time, purposefully, um, really in decades. And I I just I use that as an example to um, help folks understand the, the dramatic nature of the problems we're facing, but also to, to see that we can create the change that we want to see. It just takes political will, just takes um, creativity and folks working together to, to provide for water for the environment. And I think there's other examples like that throughout the Colorado River Basin um, that, you know, when we work together, I think we're going to be able to provide for this river that provides for all of us to, to live here and survive here. Sure. Yeah. That's one of the most amazing examples of, uh, that illustrates, I guess, the strain on that, that river is that it doesn't, it doesn't reach its natural <laughs> terminus in the, into the ocean, you know, and it's, that just tells a, a sto- the story right there. Um, one of the other big pressures, you know, I mentioned agriculture is this, uh, this, choice, I guess, between having a healthy river and having a thriving agricultural economy. Um, I think you'd say that is a false choice, right? Yeah, I absolutely believe that to my core. Um, I believe we can have a healthy agricultural economy and healthy rivers. And, uh, you know, one of the best examples of that uh, was some work that we did with the Grand Valley water users. Uh, in Colorado, um, right at the Colorado-Utah state border. And uh, the Grand Valley Water Users Association had uh, aging infrastructure. It's a challenge that many water providers face. Um, You know, this infrastructure was almost a century old and they had needs specifically. We were trying to experiment and see if there are ways to um, conserve water in ways that will actually benefit rivers. And uh, the Grand Valley Water users stepped up and said, yeah, we want to experiment a little bit with this, see if this is a tool that potentially could be useful. And they had so much interest from their farmers and ranchers to participate in this temporary 
fallowing or deficit irrigation where basically they would grow one crop instead of two in a given year and then have that conserved water go into the river. And they had so much interest that they needed to develop a lottery <laughs> to actually see which farmers and ranchers could participate. Remarkably, um, you know, they, they um, participated and that water that they uh, conserved was able to flow through their hydropower plant and generate hydropower instead of going to grow crops. It fed into the Colorado River just upstream of critical habitat for endangered fish, so it provided environmental benefits. Downstream, there's a lot of rafting that occurs in that area, and the, those flows were able to help support some of the rafting economy that was going on there. And the money that went to uh, you know, that, that association, some of it went to the farmers themselves who had changed their practices, but some of that money went back to repair some of their aging infrastructure. And so really it was a win, 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 hmm. win solution. Ultimately, that water flowed down to POW to lift up the water security benefits of the entire upper basin. And so, um, you know, it's just one example, but I, I, you know, really do think that if you are thinking outside of your individual um, needs or your individual interests and think more broadly, there are solutions that we can develop that can benefit uh, economies, can benefit farmers or ranchers, can benefit uh, cities, and can benefit the environment. Yeah, fantastic. I know that uh, I've seen a, a lot of different kind of stories like this, where different farmers, different ranchers are partnering with organizations to to try innovative ways. Um, so, I, you know, if there's any others to share, that'd be interesting. And I know also there's some science-based projects that, that farmers and ranchers are involved in too, right? Yeah, no, um, there, there certainly are. Um, we're doing a project with Google and NASA and uh, EDF and others, the Desert Research Institute, looking at using satellite imagery to help determine um, consumptive use of different crops and I, I think it's a valuable tool to farmers because, um, you know, where they might have uh, just acted because um, Farmer Joe down the way was starting to put on their sprinklers and they thought, oh, Farmer Joe may know something I don't know. Um, they might turn on their sprinklers. But this is really science-based to say, actually, your crop is consuming all that it needs to and you can save money and water and energy by not turning on your sprinklers because your crops don't need it based on you know scientific data, but we're we're using um, that tool along with some farmers uh, within the Colorado River Basin. Paul Boucher is a, a perfect example there, and they're working in the Upper Colorado River Basin to see um, how those consumptive use numbers are changing um, from what the satellites uh, determine and what they're seeing on the ground. And they're also looking at the productivity. Does it affect their productivity if they grow, you know, one crop of hay as opposed to two, uh, you know, um, in the following year or in two years down the road? Or does it um, the productivity stay the same, or does it go up, or how how does it affect the agriculture or farmer rancher um, business model? And are these things that we can adopt? And it, it really is geographic specific and we need some specific examples to actually um, make those longer term bigger changes in policy yeah 
I love hearing about the use of of technology in that way. You know, satellites and Google and everything. Uh, there's certainly a role. I've saw some story just very recently about using surveillance to, uh, I think, measure groundwater out in California. Um, I saw something about some low flying drones being involved in in siting stream restoration stuff in Pennsylvania. So, um, you know, got to use this technology to our benefit. That's for sure. Uh, one of the other big stakeholders that um, we had talked about before are the you know the indigenous communities in the basin, uh, and I'm really curious about maybe what their historic role or lack of a role was in kind of the water agreements and management. Almost a hundred years ago, uh, when the the Colorado River Compact was adopted, which is really the foundational document of the law of the river. Tribes were not asked to participate in those negotiations. They were not represented in those negotiations. And really, it was a negotiation between the and among the basin states and the federal government. Mm. Um, since then, uh, tribes' voice has been continuing to grow, and both in importance and, you know, I would say the culmination of recent um, tribal influence and tribal voice was with regard to the drought contingency plans, there was a critical, um, you know, these are a set of agreements that were just adopted by uh, the U.S., by Mexico, and by the basin states to say, if our reservoirs continue to drop, we're going to conserve even more. And here's how we're going to meter out those shortages across the various states. Well, the state of Arizona was a a critically important state, and they were only able to get a drought contingency plan adopted by by, um, by including the tribes, by the tribes sort of stepping up and saying, we will conserve additional water uh, if we can be compensated for it, and we can use that additional water to make sure that we have enough secure, reliable supplies for the city of Phoenix and Tucson and the rest of Arizona. And so tribes stepping up in that way has been, you know, remarkably important recently. And I think um, we need to continue to, to develop the voice of tribes. Um, there are parts of our country, uh, in particularly on re- tribal reservations, where people are still hauling water. And so um, we need you know, tribes to be part of our conversation, but we also need to um, live up to the commitments of ensuring you know, water equity, ensuring that tribes have safe, clean drinking water, for their communities, um, and, and there are all sorts of ways that we can sort of meet those needs if we work together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that that situation um, in some of those communities was especially tough during the coronavirus pandemic, where water and, and sanitation was so critical um, that you know that they they were um, hit hard um, in part because of the water situation. So uh, it takes me to, I guess, one of the last things I want to talk to you about. Um, you know, you've mentioned about water as a human right, um, which is something you don't hear as much in the context of the United States and in the developed world. You hear it more, you know, about the developing world and places in Africa and India. Why do you think that that phrase, uh, you know, should be used in water conversations in, in the States? Yeah, it's a really... Potent question. Um, You know, I think uh, what it really does for me is it it brings it home. It it personalizes the issue. Um, And, 
recently, uh, there have been some charges brought uh, against some political leaders in Michigan for failures associated with the Flint water crisis. And, you know, the, the challenges that that community faced and the challenges that we face on reservations within the Colorado River Basin and the challenges that we face in some disadvantaged communities within California or Arizona as well, um, you know, are, it's really, um, it's a moral, it's an ethical, you know, issue. And, and we, you know, we really need to step up as a community, as a country, to ensure that all people have at, uh, access to adequate, safe, clean, reliable drinking water. And, you know, I think the way that you can get there in part is by using words and, and by recognizing that it really is a human right. We all need water. Um, and, and I would expand it to say it's not just a human right, but it's a right of nature. I mean, our, our natural world depends on water for its mere survival. And so we, we just need to think more holistically about how we provide for communities, for people, and also for nature in terms of safe, clean, reliable drinking water. And maybe there's a recognition of that that has kind of led in part to some of this increased collaboration across the Colorado River Basin, you know, that that people need this water, the river needs the water, the, the indigenous communities need the water, and that uh, we've got to come together to, to make that happen. So. Well, Ted, I look forward to uh, keeping an eye on everything happening out there. There's always so much going on. There's so many stories, so many great examples, I think, um, that need to be held up so others can can follow after them. Um, I appreciate your time and perspective so much. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the work that you do to really share these stories across the country, across the world, and just help us all you know, develop better solutions. So yeah. thank you. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Save 20% with promo code Waterloop at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop is also sponsored by Flume, the smart water monitor that tracks your home's water use in real time and provides data on your smartphone. Save 10% with promo code Waterloop at flumewater.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. You're in the Waterloop. <laughs> Thank you.